Well, we've been in this sermon series that's called uh, uh, Life That Matters. And as we think about the things that we're thankful for, as we count our blessings during the season of Thanksgiving, we are asking ourselves, what does it look like to, 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 to live a life that matters? As God has given us all these resources, and he's, and he's poured blessing into our life, well, do we hold on to that? Do we, do we close our hands around that? Or do we open our hands? And do we live with abundant generosity? And that's going to be the kind of life that matters for eternity, a life that lives, uh, a, a life that is lived with open hands, a life of abundant generosity. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 today. You can get your Bibles out. You can turn there. If you have the Bible app on your phone, you can click on, open that up, click on events, and uh, your, your smartphone should be able to find this uh, location, and, and you can get a teaching there. You can have the sermon notes there on your phone. Um, but you'll be distracted to go to other places on your phone. So, you know, just, just know that. Um, also, uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, a physical copy, we'd love to give you one. Uh, there's Bibles out at the Welcome Center. And uh, let a member of our team bless you with a copy of God's Word today if you don't have one. Um, so Mark 14, that's where we'll be here in just a little bit. So uh, Lauren and I have been married 20 years. We celebrated 20 years of marriage uh, this, this year. Yeah, yeah. That is an applause for Lauren, not for me. Okay. Man, what a special lady. Man, how, how in the world did she do it? Um, but uh, that began with a, um, that began with a night in which I asked her to marry me. Uh, I was uh, 22 years old. She was not yet 20. And um, I had it all planned out. I had the ring. I had permission from a father. And so uh, I, was, uh, I, had, I wanted to plan this special night where you know, I took her out to dinner and then eventually uh, asked her to marry me. And I was valeting cars at the time at a restaurant. And uh, so I'd, I had graduated college. And, and what do all college graduates do? They go valet cars. Yeah, that's sort of how it works. So, so I was, I was valeting cars at a restaurant in Nashville, and I took all the money I had collected in tips for about two weeks, and I made reservations at a restaurant I could never afford. And then I also arranged for a carriage to pick us up. And by horse-drawn carriage, we were going to wind through the streets of Nashville, it's gonna t and, and it was going to end at this place called Bicentennial Park. It has this amazing view of the city, and we were going to sit on a park bench. And eventually, I was going to work up enough courage to get down on one knee and, and ask her to marry me. So I had all this planned out, um, and uh, sure enough, the night came, and, and, and um, Lauren, you know, we, we went out to the restaurant, and, and it, it was, I, you know, I, I couldn't afford that restaurant today. I, I certainly couldn't afford it uh, as, a, as a car valet, um, but... Had a, great, had a great dinner, and uh, sure enough, the, the carriage was there waiting on us, and we got in the carriage, and we began to wind through the streets of Nashville, and we get to Bicentennial Park, and we're sitting on the park bench, and, and uh, at some point in the conversation, you know, I felt like, okay, here's my moment. I got down on one knee, and I pulled the ring out, and I asked her to marry me, and she was just overwhelmed by this, you know, lavish display of love, and um, so she said yes, and I, I, I tell you that story to say I set the bar really high. Like, I don't know that I've done anything that romantic since. And if I had it to do all over again, maybe, maybe I shoot a little lower there and, like, start working up to that. But that kind of display of affection and love is, is hard to replicate uh, on a regular basis. 
Now, here's the caveat to all that. Um, the, you, ju- you need to know this, too. Um, the carriage rider, the carriage guy, I had arranged this, this ride for us, and I said, hey, can you wait for us because I'm going to ask her to marry me and then give us a ride back to the restaurant. He said, well, he said hey, I'm sorry, man. He's like, time is money. I can't wait around on you to ask that girl to marry you. And uh, so this price I'm giving you, it's a one-way trip. And he said, if you, wanna, if you want back to the restaurant, you're going to have to pay double. And I literally had, it literally cost me every dime I had. I had $1 in my bank account. And, and the, the, I knew the meal was going to cost X amount, and the carriage ride cost that. And I was like, I'm out of money. There's nothing else I can do. And so I arranged for the carriage to just drop us off and leave us. And then my buddies took my car, and they parked it uh, at the park, you know, while I, uh, while I asked Lauren to marry me. <clears throat> and, and so we, <laughs> that should have been a sign to Lauren right there. They're like, oh, this is how it's going to be, right? <laughs> you can get me to the park. You just can't get me home from the park, okay? You can give me half a carriage ride, but not a full carriage ride. And so that pattern has sort of played out. You can fold half the laundry, but you can't do all the laundry. Like, it's sort of played out uh, in a lot of different ways. Should have been a sign. Uh, by God's grace, she stuck with me all these years. But I literally had zero dollars. That was everything I had. My bank account was broken. My heart was spilled out all in that evening to ask Lauren to marry me. And I think what I learned in that moment is that, or as I've, I've you know, walked through 20 years of marriage, is that the practicality of, of mature love is certainly not as compelling as the euphoria of new love and these lavish displays of love that happen early on in our relationship. And my friend David, he actually wrote about this. He said, we replace sacrificial with the practical. We exchange the extravagant for the sensible. We substitute the spontaneous for the responsible. We trade the lavish for the useful. But he makes this point. It's not that we stop loving. It's just that the more mature our love becomes, the more judicious our means of expressing it. And I've, I've, had, I've been a pastor long enough to see a similar thing happen with people in the church. We see someone connect with the gospel for the first time. They put their hope and their trust in Jesus. They receive this good news that God has sent his one and only son into the world. And he lived a perfect life and he died a death he didn't have to. And he showed us just how much God loved the world. And he was raised victoriously. And people who hear that for the first time or surrender that to the first time, they fall in love with Jesus and they're excited and they come to church with their eyes wide open and they lift their hands in worship and they're excited to follow Jesus. And then there's a few of us, we've been around the church for a while, we see that happening and something inside of us says, yeah, they'll get over it. Yeah, that'll calm down after a while. They, they won't be such a Jesus freak after a, a few months or so. I don't think that's the right attitude to have. I don't know that we would say it out loud like that, but maybe there's something in us that says, oh, they'll get over it, they'll, they'll settle down. And we need, to, we need to look in between these two poles here and, and, and to really ask ourselves, okay, what does it mean to live every day following Jesus? Certainly, every day can't be this mountaintop revival experience, this euphoria of, of, of falling in love with Jesus for the first time. But we also can't settle in this rut of, I'm just doing this out of duty and obligation. I'm doing it because I always have. 
some point, we need to find that secret that, that married couples have discovered. And that is, as, as, they, as you build a marriage, as you build a relationship, it's not that you have to take your spouse to some expensive dinner every day to show him or her how much you love them. It's these small investments of love that you make every day. You cultivate these small, sacrificial expressions of love every day. Not because you have to, but because you are in love and because you, you want to. And I would say that following Jesus is the same thing. It's the cultivation of an everyday love, not the completion of an everyday duty. We fall in love with Jesus every day in the small, regular decisions we make to, to make him the most important priority in our life. God, you're first in my life. In every relationship I have, everything on my to-do list, every resource that I have, it all is surrendered to this one thing, that you are the most important thing in my life. And so the disciples, they felt this tension. You know, I feel like at this point in the story, in Mark chapter 14, the disciples are probably over here on this spectrum where they're doing things out of obligation or duty. Maybe they are not experiencing the euphoria of that first moment where Jesus comes to them by the Sea of Galilee and says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of people. And, and that moment's faded a little bit as they discovered really what Jesus is all about. But there's a woman in the story that reminds us of, of, of the devotion and the lavish display of love that, that we should give to Jesus. So Mark 14, let's read that together. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume, very expensive perfume. It was made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then here's this addendum to the story. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went with, to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Hmm. I want to make sure you understand the setting of this story. Jesus is in a town called Bethany, and his friends live there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They live there, and he had some other familiar relationships there, and I have to think that Jesus chose to go to Bethany for a reason, to be with his friends. He knew that the journey was going to end in Jerusalem. He knew that it was coming to this point where he would surrender his life and die a death that he didn't deserve to die in order to show the world 
just how much God loved them. And so that moment was coming, and so he wanted to be with his friends. And this woman enters with an alabaster jar. Uh, alabaster is a soft stone, and people in that part of the world, uh, or actually wherever you can find alabaster stone, they still make vessels uh, of this soft stone. And so this is what one uh, would, would have looked like back then, and, and uh, they continue to look like this now in different places. And it was a, a, it's a beautiful little container, and it had about a pint of this perfume in it. And this perfume was very costly to produce. It was an agricultural product, and, and whatever the fruit was, whatever this plant was, it produced some, some certain seed and some certain uh, some, some byproduct from this plant. And it was a very difficult process to crush the byproduct of the plant and to distill it and to get to the point where you would have enough to make a, a fragrance. So it was a very lengthy process. It was a very expensive process. And the objection in, that the disciples raise is actually a pretty good one. I mean, this is a valuable commodity. A year's wages, they say. I mean, let, let's put that in 21st century terms. Let's put that in 21st century uh, Arkansas terms. The average household income in this state is around $39,000. That's the average. And so the disciples could have easily said, hey, man, what could we do with $39,000 for this work that, that Jesus is calling us to? We could, what could we do for the poor, for instance? Let's throw that out there. Everybody wants to help the poor. That's an easy sell. Why didn't we sell this and liquidate it? And it could have funded all kinds of ministries and all kinds of things that, that, that we, we could have done. And Jesus said something that is often taken out of context. He said, leave her alone. The poor you will always have among you. Now, sometimes people take this thing that Jesus says as a way to dismiss efforts to alleviate poverty. They, they take this quote out of context and, 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 and use it to justify ambivalence or indifference to suffering and injustice. Hey, you're always going to have injustice. You're always going to have the poor. You're always going to have people that, you know, don't make as much money as other people. And you're always going to have people that are disenfranchised by the system. And they're not going to be able to, you know, participate at, at the same levels that we all do. It's just a reality. It's just how it is. So let's not worry about it. And it's completely taking what Jesus is saying out of context. In fact, this verse is almost used to, to create a, a false dichotomy, if you will, or making a, a decision in either or, saying, well, the church should either be focused on, you know, heavenly things like worship and discipleship and these kind of interior things we do as the church. That's where our resources need to go. Or we need to be focused on the poor and ministries of justice and moving to the marginalized. And, our, and so we, we create this either-or situation. And what Jesus is actually saying, if you put the quote in context, is church, it's both and. It's both and. And here's the quote in context. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. And you realize what Deuteronomy is, right? It's, it's the people coming out of Egypt, and God gives them his laws to form and shape them to be a people that's different than any other people. And in Deuteronomy 15, 
we read this where the Lord says, give generously to them, the poor, the disenfranchised, the people in the margins. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. And I'm reading that as live with open hands. The Lord will bless this work of open hands. He'll put resources in your open hands. And everything you put your hand to, here it is, here's the quote, then there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So let's put the quote in its context. It's often used to justify indifference or ambivalence towards ministries of compassion to the poor. But in its correct context, it's not to create ambivalence towards those kinds of things. It's to say, this is your continual vocation. There are always going to be people who are in need. There are always going to be people who have been pushed to the margins and have been forgotten about. And as my unique people that I've brought out of Egypt, you're not to forget about those people. You're not to be indifferent towards those situations. 